Hi, everyone, and thanks for coming back. Today's episode is on, oh, Sheree, you're going to have to help me say his name, Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, Hayao Miyazaki. Yes, Hayao Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle. As always, you don't have to watch the movie in order to listen to the episode, but we always recommend it as we will never stray away from spoilers. I am very excited to talk about one of Sheree's favorite films, so let's get rolling. I'm your host, Audrey. And I'm your co-host, Sheree. So sit back, relax, and please don't silence your phone while we check your cinematic pulse. I was smiling for the whole intro. Can you tell? I was also smiling the whole intro. <laughs> Girl, oh, I'm so I love I love this movie to pieces. Oh, to pieces. I love this movie so much. So, um, it's based on a Welsh, not well. The the author is Welsh. I don't know if the book is technically Welsh. I don't think it's written in Welsh. I don't know. Um, but the it's based on a Welsh book by of the same name, um, about. I'm gonna try. To, I'm gonna try to capture the essence of this movie, even though this movie is kind of all over the place. Um, but it is essentially about a young girl working in a hat shop gets swept up in a magical war and helps a young wizard overcome his cowardice and find love and family. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's about. That's about right. It's a little. Bit I didn't of, even look lo- at the book story. It is a love story. It's a love story, and it's a story of, of heroism on both fronts, mm-hmm. um, because because Sophie becomes a hero as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's a but it's a little bit all over the place because one thing that I actually really liked, and I can see how people wouldn't like, but I really liked about this movie is that it didn't spoon feed you anything. No, um, it really no. just dropped <laughs> you in the middle of a plot. Yep, and it doesn't. There's no over explaining, and I cannot express how much I love that in literature and movies. I don't want something overly explained to me. I want to feel smart, like I have figured out something and I have understood something when a puzzle piece clicks into place while I'm watching or reading. You know, this yeah, this movie is one where I had to watch it several times before I could get all the nuances of it. Um. And I think the I'm first so time I watched watch it, it was like 15 years old, maybe. Really? Okay, that's interesting because it came out in what, 2004? I kind yes. of expected you to have watched it when it came out. So this was not my intro to Ghibli. So I guess this is first impressions, kind of. Yeah. I was introduced to Ghibli in like third grade. Do you, you anyone our age, the millennial, um, would know that rainy days during recess meant a TV on a cart was pushed into your classroom and you'd have TV movie times on those rainy days or you'd go to the gym. Yes. So my first Ghibli film was My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service. And Interesting. I was immediately hooked to that art style as soon as I saw it. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing my nine-year-old eyes have ever seen. And to this day, they are still mm, the most beautiful films. It is films. very visually mesmerizing for sure. They are the most beautiful films I have ever watched in my entire life, period. Full stop. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> and so it was, I it, I know I was in high school the first time I saw House Moving Castle. It, we had like an HBO channel with our cable at that time. And I saw the like Studio Ghibli Totoro sign coming on my screen. I was like, oh, which movie is this? And the movie drops you in, like you say, to this plot. 
And mm-hmm. I sat there and just I'm like, land you in there. Yeah. I watched this whole film. I was like, what was that? <laughs> the only thing. Yeah, that's a very good way to sum that, sum up the feeling after finishing that movie. You're like, I feel vaguely happy, but also really confused. You know what made me love that film? It wasn't the plot. It wasn't the characters. What I fell in love with that film first was the music. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. The music in this movie was so interesting. I have lots of thoughts about it. The music of Johi Sayushi is how I re- honestly fell in love with all the films. Um, the music... Oh, God. I was listening to the soundtrack today while I was working. Audrey, I cannot tell you how often and how frequently I have Johi Sayushi on in the background when I'm doing stuff, especially reading and relaxing. His music... Can I ask what you like specifically about this soundtrack? It's emotive. It's very... That's the thing about... Because now we're, we're going into composer Joe Hisaishi. He's my favorite. He's my favorite yeah, composer we'll of place. all fine. time. It's fine. We're going to go over all over the place with this one. Favorite composer of all time. Hands down. No other competitors in my heart except Joe Hisaishi. He's my number one. But what I love about his music is it's so emotive of things that are happening within the film. So think about the flower garden scene. We have that song play several times throughout the film, but it's different there. It's almost, Mm -hmm. it's more romantic, I would say. Because again, the theme comes up several different times. Sometimes it's, you know, a little more basic or it's a little, um, you have, you may have more brassy things or more violin, but then when -hmm. you have the flower scene, the flower garden, it's more like a a grand orchestra at that point. Mm. It's this Mm -hmm. moment of, you know, she's finally let her guard down and she's, feeling happy and loved and the music comes through with that it is he's just so good at being able to showcase emotion through music it's just it's it's a master he's a master class at this I feel like I don't have anything to add to that I love it so much (laughs) I, I I could go on about him forever and ever and for anyone who falls in love with the music like I did He's playing music in the country in Chicago and New York this summer, and I'm trying desperately to see if I can find a way to go see this man play music live. We should live. find a way to go. Oh, I want to go so badly. Like it's it's we on my bucket list. Take a friend list. trip to New York and go see him in concert. Chicago, also. I'm just saying it's around my birthday. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's around my birthday. Yeah, but I hate Chicago. I, I don't hate Chicago. I just hate driving in Chicago. You know what? I hate driving in New York, but I'm not going there. <laughs> Wait, go. That's not okay. this podcast. Not this podcast. Um, yeah. So I told you I was listening to the soundtrack today while I was working because I I really wanted to make sure that I had paid attention to the music specifically. But I'll tell you, one of my first thoughts, like in first impressions, um, one of my first thought was like, "Holy cow, the music." Um, the music as like a first time viewer and you know being a, a thirty year old, you know not having. I, I didn't I didn't watch Studio Ghibli growing up. Um, it was not in my wheelhouse. I, th- I think probably also kind of fell into the the area of stuff I might not have been allowed to watch mm-hmm. in that time. Um, especially, you know, given some of the content, uh, you know, like with this one, there was magic and stuff. I wouldn't have been able to, right. to watch that. Um, but as as a 30 year old viewer watching this for the first time, I was struck by how unexpected the soundtrack was because I felt like it was actually kind of 
dissonant with the overall feel of the animation. Like, the soundtrack was its own character. Oh, yeah. And and I very much felt that way. Like, the soundtrack existed separately from It's funny you say that, for because me. a lot of people say that his music is its own character. It's a character of the film. Yeah, because it was so, like, like I said, not not dissonant necessarily like it's not that it clashed but it was unexpected it was pretty and in scenes of the movie that were pretty but it was not what i would have thought of going in that scene it had its own character and so it was it was surprising and different in its own way like that and it made me pay attention to the soundtrack throughout the rest of the movie so you saying like so even though i've only seen this movie once and then i listened to the soundtrack a little bit today so i was i had it fresh in my head like mm-hmm. i i know what you're talking about about the recurrence of that theme and i can't hum it because again it's I've only called merry go round of life in case anyone's wondering yes. what theme i'm talking about but I heard it too in like the soundtrack behind when um, when Sophie and Hal escape from like the the henchmen or whatever, and they're like walking in the sky. Mm-hmm. You hear that theme again, but it's like more of like a fun games kind of theme. Right. As they change the theme up. Like throughout it's the, the same film. theme. Right. It's the exact same theme, but it's it's done in a much more like upbeat and and carnivalistic almost mm-hmm. kind of kind of tone for that instance. Um, and so I totally know what you're talking about because that theme was so recurring throughout the movie. Um, and I, I must have heard it somewhere along the it's lines. It's a very at some point popular song. A lot of, like, you hear playing. those, you hear those songs that, like, I've heard it come up in TikTok trends. I've heard it come up. Like, it, it, it's been trendy throughout its existence at different times. Yeah, and I recognized it. I don't know where I've heard it, but I, I guess heard it at some point enough that I recognized it when it came up. And I was like, oh, so that's what this is from. Um, so, yeah, absolutely loved it. My first impressions of the overall movie, um, and, and I guess opening up on the castle specifically, um, is that I had this overall feeling that the the movie is just eerie and disconcerting but also beautiful and magical at the same time oh yeah and i feel like that kind of sums up specifically the animation but also the story for the overall movie like everything can be described as eerie and disconcerting but also beautiful and magical the whole time it's that's literally what hayao miyazaki does is he's he's kind of a pacifist and anti-war kind of guy um, actually, I could tell. I, I could <laughs> definitely tell from this movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his dad was a military man, and he, he grew up loving... That's something I should point out, too, is if you watch Hayao Miyazaki films, you should always notice there are flying contraptions. He's always been in love with the air and, you know, things that fly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this film, he shows this weird flying castle along with warships, Um so it's one of those things where he's like, you know, I, I see the beauty of the sky, but also the, the things that man can bring to the sky. Um, there's a lot to be said about his love of, mo- like, or rather his dislike of modernity and more of a, I don't know, less, less modern times, as you can tell. Like a lot of his films, you don't really see a lot of like modern contraptions other than you know like boats and and weird flying contraptions like you see cars from time to time but his movies focus a lot on just normal everyday things they don't really focus on Mm -hmm. like technology technology work yeah working in an office weird things like i say weird 
normal things. I guess the like that. They're weird. The mundane is actually what he focuses on a lot of the time. And I honestly mm-hmm. think that's one of the reasons why I love his movies so much is, I honestly probably is the reason I love his movies so much is he makes the mundane, the everyday look stunning and gorgeous. And it makes you stop and like, I kid you not, these films have made me stop and just appreciate the small things like the sun coming up, listening to bugs chirp before I go to bed on a summer's night, Aww. being focused on just that's making so dinner. I love it. I'm telling you, man, this is this is why I love him so much is he just finds the beauty in the small things. It's why he's my favorite oh, director. I swear, nothing will make you appreciate like the cooking of food quite like Japanese animation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I kid you not, Audrey, for my birthday last year, my brother got me um, these 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 art pieces from Etsy of just Ghibli food. So I could hang these in my kitchen. I will send you a picture. That is such a sweet and thoughtful gift. Mm -hmm. That's such a good gift. It's just different Ghibli food items that are, you know, on this print. And I'm going to hang, I have them to hang in my kitchen. I haven't done it yet. I've had them for almost a year now and I hate myself for not hanging them up. But I have them as a very thoughtful gift because I obviously love the films I love to cook. That's fantastic. I love that so much. Um, I, okay, so you said you watched this movie as, like, a 15-year-old, but that was not your Half first Half my life ago. <laughs> right. All right, we're not talking about that. <laughs> um, I can see how this movie would be appealing to both juvenile and adult audiences. I feel like there's something in it for everybody. Um, I was not, I, I was not bored watching the movie, and I didn't, I didn't feel like I wasn't watch, watching something mature you know i well okay i I never felt like i was watching something immature right you know like i mean there there's definitely some some juvenility to it oh yeah um but but not in a way that makes it so much like you feel like you're watching a kid's movie at all i mean some of the the plot lines can be simplistic you know of of wanting to stop a war and of like find like finding the crown prince and him being like thank you for breaking my spell i better go tell my dad to stop this war <laughs> yeah i that made me laugh i was like well that's a kids movie for you <laughs> but like this is not I mean, a like, the rest of it go ahead go ahead god <laughs> um but like some of the rest of the plot points like especially about sophie's character and about hal's character um and even some of the like the antagonist characters like the witch of the waste mm-hmm. um their their plot lines and their their character arcs and progressions are not simple um these movies like, are quirky instance, enough that my mom when she sits there and watches them with me she's like i don't know what happened and i need you to tell me what happened yes like I-, I think a great example of that would be trying to put into words how sophie is able to break her curse mm-hmm. um that's a really really good one because the first time that i really noticed it and the first time that was super obvious i want to go back and watch and see if there were times before that that i wasn't noticing because i will say like i i thought at one point that like maybe just the animation with like grandma sophie was inconsistent Mm -hmm. oh yes Um, continue and i and i wanted to i wanted to just chalk it up to like you know the animators being inconsistent because it's an older movie it was made in 2004 i've seen plenty of 
movies where the animation is inconsistent. Heck, I've seen movies where main characters' hair will change colors in a frame because they missed it during editing. But the once I saw the scene where Hal comes back from, I, I, I think it was like an evening out fighting the war or something. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what he comes back from. But he comes back and he checks on Sophie and she's herself. She's herself while she's sleeping. Yep. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's normal. And so my brain was like, is she normal only when she's sleeping? And so then you're trying to work out where where the, the loopholes and the spell are. And now you're thinking about it. Now you're paying attention to her appearance. And I don't know if it happened at all before that. And I want to go back and I want to look for it. But... After that, I paid attention to her character and how her character looks. And I would see the moments when when Grandma Sophie wasn't as squat and stooped. And when she was standing taller, when she was a little bit thinner, and when her braid was a little bit longer. And I saw it. And not stuck up in the air. That's actually the first thing I noticed. Because, again, the first time I watched this, I thought the same thing. I'm like, why does her appearance keep changing? And then I was like, oh, wait, mm-hmm. it's a plot point. Her appearance changes on it's purpose. It's a plot point. It's intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from from my estimation and from my research, essentially, and please tell me if I'm like wrong or right, but essentially Sophie's um, grandma like appearance diminishes when she is unguarded with herself and confident in herself and when she is vulnerable. Yeah, I, um, I always saw it as that is when she's more vulnerable lets her guard down, a little more honest with herself, mm-hmm. is that her true form comes out, and that's that's the spell is, you know, she has hid, like before, she hid behind her word. She hid behind her yes. appearance. And, you know. Yeah, she didn't want, she always had kept her hair back in a braid, you know, was unassuming in appearance, enjoyed just working at the hat shop when she was invited to go out and hang out with people after work. She's like, no, no, let me just, I have some work to finish. She literally, girl literally works for like five extra minutes, and then she's like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go see my sister now. Right, right. <laughs> Which so it's not that she had too much work to do that she couldn't go hang out with people. It's that she didn't want to. Right. You know, she didn't. She was not a social butterfly. She was not a socialite. That wasn't her vibe at all. But then she's forced into this situation where she kind of becomes a social butterfly, where she's got a house full of characters to take care of. Right. And she and she's, she's hanging able, out with people. She's able to hide behind the appearance of a grandma. She 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 gets be, mm-hmm. be somebody else. Of course, it's easier to be somebody else and not yourself. You can pretend to be whoever you want. Right. Yeah, but I and then I think that gives her the ability to be maybe a little bit more unguarded Confident. because she finds that confidence. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I I loved it. Sophie's character is very very interesting. Um I I loved the the moment at the end which again, you know, spoilers, but there's there's this moment when Sophie's braid gets cut off. Mm-hmm. And my brain was like, "Hey, tangled." Right. I was half expecting her hair to change color, but it technically did. Sophie mm-hmm. does not end the story with brown hair. Um, which, I don't know, this this book was, book, this movie was interesting because it did not go where I expected it to go. Where'd you expect um, it to go? It's, so it started out very cute, um, you know, like Japanese romance for me. Like, this made me want to, like, hop on, like, Manta and read some, like, Korean romance comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that is that is very much the vibe it gives off that, you know, oh, she's on her way to see her sister. She gets stopped by some surly-looking 
soldiers with bad intentions and saved by who we obviously already know is like the handsome sorcerer who lives in the castle we're like duh he's been brought up enough that's obviously who this character is he's covered in like prime jewels so you you know that his character it comes from wealth and then obviously he exhibits magic towards the soldiers so you're like oh okay and obviously then he pretends that she's his girlfriend so you're like I was thinking, oh, okay, so this is just going to be, like, a straight-up romance movie, and this is going to be about their relationship in some way, shape, or form, and she's going to help him do something. Um, like, he's got some problem that only she can somehow help him solve, which is kind it's of kind of true. But, <laughs> but not in the way you expect. I did not expect for our main character, 10 minutes into the movie, to get turned into an old lady. Was not expecting nope, that not at all. Card. <laughs> right, like I will admit, I did not have that on my Japanese romance bingo card. So that's why I was like, then after that, I'm I'm drawn into the movie. I'm like, okay. So I thought I knew what I was expecting out of this movie, and I have had my expectations thrown on their head. So now I need to pay attention because what in the world is this movie going to be about? Because I specifically didn't read up anything on it before I started watching. I just started watching. I didn't watch a trailer. I didn't read like the the blip about the the movie before I started mm-hmm. watching, I was just like, I'm just going to dive in. And so I had no idea what to expect, and I had no expectations, and then I thought I did, and then I very much did not. <laughs> I will always say that even still to this day, the part of this film that always gets me is the time traveling. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. At the end. Yeah, that was a bit of a trip. <laughs> because I'm like, so I... So she goes through the black portal at the door, and... I think it's supposed to be, because, like, um, I think it was Markle says, like, only Master Howell knows where the Black Portal goes or whatever, and he's only, he's allowed to go, to go through there. Um, and, and obviously we've seen him go through it, and it takes him to other places. It takes him into battle. Right. Right. So I think that the Black Portal is supposed to be, it takes you where you need to go. The other three are set destinations, but the black one takes you where you need to go. Huh. And so when she uses it, it takes her to the point in time where she needs to understand Hal's curse so that she can break it when she goes back to the future. And once she finds that information, then she can help him when she comes back. I like that. And then the door disappears when she comes back because she went where she needed to go and she doesn't need to use it again. Problem solved. Besides, also, I think what she comes back and howls there at the bottom of that ravine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my theory on what it is um, and why she would have time traveled. But it is interesting because she, as she's like falling into the portal that's opening back up to take her back to the present, she says, like, find me in the future. Mm-hmm. And he does. And I think that he does. And I, but I'm wondering if. Not just at the bottom of the ravine, you know, because he was already up in the sky. He probably could have seen her. He's fighting a battle not that far away. He could see his castle falling apart and wandering along the cliffside. I'm wondering if that's not why he found her in the alleyway. Oh, yeah. I think he's been searching for her. Right? That's what I'm thinking. That's why he moves his castle around. He's searching for Sophie in Mm -hmm. the future. And why he didn't think twice about some random grandma appearing in his castle because he's like, okay, clearly this is a woman who's been cursed. This is probably my woman because I, you know, sought her out and made her known to the Witch of the Waste. So, yeah. I also... I very much think that's how the whole plot gets started. 
I also want to assume that um, he kind of can see through the magic. That's what I think, too. I think he can like, see. Like, he can, like, maybe, like, feel her heart, you know? I think he kind of like, knows. Know that it's her. Right. I think he knows it's her. Even, like, even as a grandma, I think he just knows. Because that was a debate right, because... for a long, long time where it's like, okay, like, when Hal sees her when she's sleeping as herself that first night, he... He's not shocked at all. He's not shocked. But it, people are always like, okay, but is he seeing her as an old lady? Or, or rather, does he always see her as that person, like her normal self, and we're just seeing her as the projected old lady? I wondered about that. I wondered if the old lady thing was actually an illusion. I wonder if it's an illusion to people who are not mages. You know what I mean? Because also, mm-hmm. Madame Solomon, she's like, uh, I think Madame Solomon sees through it as well. But it's it's never confirmed, and I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that just being a theory forever. Um, but it's one of those things I always wondered, like, can he see her or does she look like a, an old lady to him sometimes too? If I had to write it, I would say that someone who has magic may not be able to see, see beneath her facade, but, but would be able to feel that that's not her true right. form, you know, right. would be able to feel that there's a curse because Calcifer does it too. He says, boy, you got one heck of a curse on you. Right, right. And so, so the that's bread, kind the of my, my feeling. There. The breadcrumbs are there for right. us to theorize with. Which, okay, since we're talking about this, and since like we said we were going to be jumping all over the place, and that's what we're going to do, um, do you think that Sophie herself is magical? No. No? Can you tell me why? I, it's so funny I, I don't necessarily think that she might be magic, but she might be someone who, or that which magic follows or seeks out. Does that make sense? She mm-hmm. may not be a wielder itself, but magic itself follows her. Okay. Like a magnet almost. Because um, think of all the magical things that once she comes in contact with how magic is just all over the place for her at that point. You have the Witch of the Ways, her mm-hmm. henchman. You have the Turnip Head Scarecrow. All these things. But, the, I mean, you could also argue that because of the magic that is imbued around her now, when she's been cursed, maybe magic just seeks out other objects that are magically cursed or just have magic mm-hmm. flowing through them. So I would assume, um, beginning of the film, no. But maybe at the end, she does have some kind of... I wouldn't say magic itself. Like, she, I don't think she can wield magic. Maybe she can be taught, like Markle. But I don't think she mm-hmm. herself starts off as magical, per se. I think that she might be. Um, I, And it's kind of hard to explain why, because it really... And, and this is what this whole movie does, is it doesn't spoon-feed you anything. It, it leaves you to make up your own conclusions about things but um I think it's to me in her having any degree of control over her curse that she has on her um because like for Turniped it was one simple thing like she needed he needed to be smooched right right um and you would think that for something like her curse, it would potentially be one simple thing, um, or it could potentially be one simple thing, like like a kiss from her true love, right? Someone who could see her past, her exterior, and know her heart on the inside and love her despite her appearance, that kind of thing. Um, 
I was very much anticipating it being something like that because I think by the end of the movie, Sophie doesn't truly break her curse because, and the, and the reason I think that is because her hair is still gray. Right. And we don't it. even know. We still don't know. We never learn how you break that curse. We don't. Exactly. And part of the reason why I think that she does have some magical ability um, is that she seems to exhibit some degree of control, even if it's unconscious control, which, you know, anytime we have characters coming into magical ability in any sort of, you know, fiction, it's usually through unintentional magic. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost always are doing something intentionally, have magical outbursts, accidentally affects the, affect the world around them in a magical way. And I really feel like that's what Sophie could potentially be doing with her curse is in moments when she's feeling particularly unguarded and her magic could be flowing freely. She ha- she is fighting against the curse that is on her and exhibiting, you know, and, and put showing the person that's underneath. Um, and, and, you know, maybe doesn't find the actual cure for the curse or the whatever that would break that curse. Um, and, and also she has, there's a little tongue in cheek moments when, like, Marco asks, like, are you sure you're not a witch? Right. And she says, of course I'm a witch. I'm the worst kind. I'm the kind that cleans. But it's, while it's funny, there's, you have a character asking a question like that. And if we've said anything once, we'll say it again on this podcast. Everything is done with intention. Right. Nothing is done on accident. And so you have a line like that of Marco placing the thought in viewers' heads of, is Sophie maybe actually a witch? Why else would the Witch of the Waste have sought her out? Maybe she just doesn't know because she's been, you know, squirreled away in the hat shop her entire life. She's never had a chance to, you know, stretch stretch any sort of magical power that she has. So, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of other instances where you could do, like, for or against in the movie. But by the end of it, I very much felt like Sophie could have some sort of magical ability, um, especially in sacrificing her hair to Calcifer so that he can do this magic spell. And it gives him immense power. Right. I mean, you could argue that it's something about, like, a magical connection of love between her and Howl, but... I don't know. I think it's her. I think it's her specifically. Well, you I think also, she I also think that has some sort of magic. Think about this too. How swallowed Calcifer, where Sophie gave mm-hmm. something, you know, how took that Sophie gave. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's she's playing on the same kind of magic, and somehow that is even more powerful. Right. Well, okay, so no question. There's a lot of selflessness upon, you know, that Sophie shows throughout this film is she even helps her enemy, the person who literally made her the way she is. Yep. Mm -hmm. And who continues to sabotage their progress even after she's been taken in. Mm -hmm. Um, But on your comment earlier about, you know, how how took, he, he didn't really calcifer took i think he swallowed calcifer so that calcifer could have access to his heart because i mean calcifer doesn't exist inside of him he exists separately with howl's heart i think i honestly think that was a kind of symbiosis type of thing where you know Mm -hmm. how yeah 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 i agree calcifer got his kind of like kind of used his powers but you know Calcifer mm-hmm. uses... Yeah, they're now symbiotic. They have a symbiotic yeah. relationship. But that's what Calcifer kind of explains, too, is he says, like, I can't move the castle without Howl. Like, our magic only works together. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But I'd like to think that I like this, also... this thoughtful theory of yours. I like it. I Thank you. 
Which, I mean, you know I'm a sucker for romance, too, so it could very well just Do be you know why I picked in this the love film? that she shares. This is why I, I love it. Was it because of me? Because of I, the romance? I, I picked a romance. I was like, I'm not going to throw spirit away at her. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to throw a romance her way first. It made me very happy inside, and it made me want to write a romance story. Thank you very much. It's on my to-do list. You're welcome. <laughs> um... Which reminds me, since we were talking about um, Calcifer's character, uh, can we talk about the casting? Because oh, I yes. absolutely love Billy fantastic. Crystal as Calcifer. Oh, he's the best. Oh my gosh, he's I'd like to watch the, the Japanese version sometime, and and just he, so I could just hear the mm-hmm. intonation, you mm-hmm. know. But but the English version was absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, Christian Bale as Howl is awesome. <laughs> I remember, because at the time that I first watched this film, I think was around the time I watched the Christian Bale Batman trilogy. Did and you hear it? I Because I it? saw Howl's Moving Castle first, and then I, I remember watching the Batman movies with my brother one summer, and I was like, hold on. I was like, I know this voice. How do I know this voice? And it wasn't until I watched Howl's Moving Castle post seeing those films that god knows when and i was like oh my goodness it's batman mm-hmm. it's batman it's batman it's batman it's batman it's he's somehow a similar character too he also flies when the, when he has <laughs> his like evil <laughs> demon bird voice i'm like oh there's the batman coming out yes i hope that you heard it because he i literally looked this up because i was like what in the batman and he is actually he was actually preparing for his role as Batman during the recording and production of this movie. Makes so he sense. 100% intentionally snuck his Batman growl into this role. Because didn't the first... Did Batman Begins come out in 2008? That didn't sound No, far. I think it was earlier than that. I think it was like six or seven. Pause for, you know, research. Let's find that out. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. 2005 with Batman Begins. Wow, a year later... Mm-hmm. No, this, uh, oh, now, yeah, it was a year later. Batman Begins in 2005. This was 2004. So, yeah, he really was preparing for production during the recording of this movie. Oh, I love it. I love that. I love it so much. Who's Markle? How long have we been talking about this? Josh Hutcherson! Little baby Josh Hutcherson! Baby my mic jo- clipped! <laughs> I bet it did. <laughs> Little baby Josh Hutcherson. PETA, for some of you who don't recognize the name oh. Josh Hutcherson. It was it was driving me bananas too because his care his voice actually sounds a lot like um, Aang from the animated Avatar: mm. The Last Airbender. It sounds so much like him, and it was driving me batty because I was trying to figure out if it was him because I could have sworn that it was him. Like even some of the intonation is identical. And then I look it up and I'm like, nope, Josh Hutcherson. All right, never would have guessed that in a million bazillion years. That's one of those um, where other... I had to be older to appreciate it being Josh Hutcherson. Mm-hmm. Like the same like going way. going back and watching The Prestige and seeing everyone who's in The Prestige. I mean, like, holy crap, where was this cast? Right. Where was this cast hiding? Right. The other one, there's also another Hunger Games character in there. Um, Jenna Malone, who plays Joanna Mason. Love. Yep. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. She was. Joanna's hold on. Help favorite. me. Who, who did she voice? Um, she voiced, uh, Sophie's sister, Letty. That's what I thought. I was like, that's where I hear it. Yeah. Sophie's sister, Letty. So yeah, I love this movie. Thank you for making me watch it. I will 100% be going back and watching it all over again. Isn't it wonderful? 
it is so wonderful. It's the the writing in it is surprisingly profound. And I mean, like, it's based on a book, so you know you've got good source material to go off of. But um, not every director and producer does their source material justice. They very often do their own spin on it. Mm-hmm. And I really think I I, I downloaded the book. I'm going to read it because I want to know. I want to know what, what all the hype is about now. I want to see if it stayed true to the source material or not. Um, but I really think that it had a very much booky kind of feel to the whole plot of the script. Um, and I really feel like it, the movie included a lot of symbolism that I would really hope is in the book. Um, and I really, I'm sure that you've noticed because I know how much you love symbolism. Oh yeah. I, so I was, I was reading through this. Did you know that there is symbolism surrounding the characters' hats? I feel like I'm not going to tell you anything you didn't know, but did you know that there's symbolism around the hats? I feel like I've read this, but honestly, something I have not (laughs) thought about in ages because I typically am just so enthralled by the artwork. Right. So I looked this up and it was um, people's hats and hair are metaphorical in this. Um, Like the townspeople and soldiers' hats symbolize conformity and corruption, obviously talking about the, you know, the anti-war and pacifism. Um, And more oversized hats indicate worse characters such as like the witch of the waste giant hat Well, that makes sense too because if you just think about classism the bigger the hat the richer you are the bigger your hair Mm. that all makes sense Mm -hmm. like those are those are things i would have thought more about when you brought up hats was like well yeah hats can you know definitely show your wealth in society but in this film it would make more sense the bigger the hat the more horrible you are well, and remember, her mom comes home and she's like, oh my gosh, look at my new hat that I got. And they're all like, oh, we love it. But she has this big, giant, flamboyant hat mm-hmm. and she winds up betraying Sophie later. Like, you, Gross. Yeah. So her hat, her giant, flamboyant hat is supposed to be symbolic Some of mom. Her, her future betrayal. I know! Um, and... I don't know. And then obviously, you know, Hal's hair color shifts with mm-hmm. his hair, with his character change. Um, and Sophie's does too, obviously. And I don't know. The hair thing, I think it could have gotten. The hat thing, I would not have known that without looking it up. I would not have watched the movie and been like, you know what symbolizes bad characters? Their hats. Never no. would have thought that. Would never have gotten that. And that's, I don't know. I love symbolism, but mm-hmm. symbolism is often kind of a double-edged sword because you can feel like you've put so much meaning and so much intention into into putting symbols into your stuff but then even even an even a casual or even inquisitive viewer is going to miss those symbols entirely it's, unless they know about them beforehand. It, here's the thing, too. It's not like it's putting your face. Like, think back again to our very no. first episode where we talked about Batman and the color red. That's all over the place. Like, all over it's, the place. It's, it's obvious. It, Red's got to mean something. It's right. everywhere. Hats, you, if this, in this film, it looks more like it's just a fashion statement or that it's, you know, exactly. it's just part of the character's life because she's a hat maker. You don't think, oh, you, hats you're a terrible person or you're a good, you know. Right. It, you, I would never, ever have assumed that hats would mean anything Mm-mm. in this film, honestly. Like, now that I know, I can go back and, and put that all together. Like, Hal? Hal doesn't even wear a hat. Right. Hal doesn't even wear a hat because he, he is a very hat free is character. bland. 
Yes, it's very bland and very basic. It is just a simple necessity um, to keep the sun out of her eyes when she goes on a journey because, you know, she is an unassuming character and she's not flamboyant and she's not bad. So her hat symbolizes nothing. Right. Um, or the, the lack of, you know, the lack of being a bad character. Lack of motive. And, right. So, like, y- you can put those dots together. Um, for instance, when she go goes and meets, like, Madame Solomon, um, she's wearing a hat. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just an odd, it's an odd character choice. It's an odd design choice for her because she's this opulent woman in this like wheelchair or whatever. And it's just an odd outfit choice to just like plop a hat on there. And I guess if you know about the symbolism ahead of time, you can see like, maybe you should be a little bit suspicious of her character, you know, because she is wearing a hat. Never again would have thought about the hats being. I know, and that's where I'm like, you know, you put so much intention into that, and it's almost wasted. Right. Because I have to agree with you on that. I mean, like wasted. (laughs) Yeah, because I kind of compared it to like like Pirates of the Caribbean, the Isla de Muerta, the island that cannot be found only by those who already know where it is. It's like that. You can't pick out the hat symbolism unless you already know that it's there. Right. And that's just, that's bad. I don't want to say bad symbolism to me. I mean, it's fun to then go back and watch it a second time once you know it exists and right. you can find all of those symbols. But I feel like if you're putting symbolism in something, you you should be able to put two and two together. Like like Sophie's hair. Mm-hmm. Like Sophie's hair and like Howell's hair. You know, they symbolize character journeys and character progression yeah. for both of them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's and there's plenty of other really really well done symbolism throughout the whole thing. But I was reading that and I was like, I never would have guessed that in a million years, never. <laughs> ever. So there's um there's also I believe I read once too. This is another really like it it's it, this has come from watching this film a lot of times and watching theory videos over my life of this film, where at the beginning of the film where the train comes through the city and there's just smoke everywhere. People are like, oh. Mm-hmm. It's it's showing later that the city's going to be under fire and under siege. And I'm like, you got to really okay. look for that one, too, I think. I think that that one, when I saw that, when I because I, I thought about that, too, because it's this beautiful, gorgeous, like, French-inspired city. But you have this train just cutting straight through the heart of it and just belching coal into the sky. Right. And... It- and to me, I think that that falls more in line with that, what you were talking about of of Miyazaki prefers not to use technology mm-hmm. and prefers, like, the simplistic um, and and does, I mean, it's very much, it reminds me of, like, the, um, what is the word I'm looking for here? Like, the, it's not called the steam age, but... I can't think of what this word is. There's a certain age that um, we talk about in like, the progression of society. Industrial age. I was, thank you. It reminds me of like the the transition to the industrial age, of of where we very much were were basing a lot of our production on like coal, um, and and use of that. And whenever you think of that age, you think of like big smokestacks just belching black smoke into the right. sky. Right. You know and. And it is generally used as an unpleasant visual um, along with, you know, some of the other that, that's kind of where how he has these people dressed as as if we're they're pushing into the industrial age. They're right on that turn right. of 
like that not turn of the century but and like it's they're funny right on too that change it's like you you you're sitting on the age of industrialism and yet you're seeing these flying contraptions that are way into the future and it, it's, it's oh my gosh like can we talk about how those ships totally looked like the chitari ships from like the avengers yeah and it's just you're like okay but so what are we going for right right we have these and these, uh, coal steam it was very engines. they're very pretty they're very like they're very interesting visually um and they're not intuitive visually you're like wow like where did your brain come up with that because that's so interesting and not in line with everything that is existing below but i think that's done on purpose i think that it's supposed to be so far removed from their everyday life and and that ridiculous dichotomy that's presented is done on purpose Mm -hmm. because it's supposed to be about pacifism and how the war is bad that like these ships and machines are so different from like the everyday mundane life right empowered empowered by magic yes and magic flying creatures and everything um yeah i i think it's i think it's done intentionally just like that that train cutting through the city that it's supposed to be like a touch of like sinisterness Mm -hmm. almost you know that like it's supposed to foretell that something bad is coming yeah oh bless you for saying foretell oh (laughs) it's like when i say for when and people are like what does that mean i'm like look it up you know, forewent. If, if for, we, we forewent the decision to go to Panera instead, and we went to Noodles and Company. Now I want Noodles and Company. Audrey. Cherie. What was your favorite scene? My favorite scene? Hmm. Man, that's tough. I There's love. a few. Give me um, two or three that you absolutely love. Okay. Visually... Visually, um, one of my favorite scenes is probably not what you're thinking. Um, visually, my favorite scene was when you see Howl and Calcifer's symbiosis when they move the castle. The house, like where and, they redo it at the end or towards the end. But, but all all of it. My favorite scene is when you know they they join their magic and they move the castle and they like teleport it. And it's so cool. It's and very, Calcifer it, gets like giant and rainbowy, mm-hmm. and you just you just see like he's he, like he's joking before he's like I'm a very powerful fire demon, and you're like yeah okay sure you are buddy, um but then you see it yes. you see all of his power that he has when he's joined with Hal and I was like whoa so it was like an emotionally moving moment because Calcifer has just been the comedic relief up to that point and just been fun, mm-hmm. and then I got to take his character seriously and then you see all of the beauty that they create in just moving into Sophie's home yeah basically yeah and and that was just very beautiful and glittery and shiny and i i really loved the animation for that like that was it was so pretty it was so 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 pretty um so visually that one's probably my favorite one not when she's like not in his room his room is like too much it's a lot it's a lot and I and I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be symbolic of him like hiding behind his magic. It's also very reflective of his character as well. Very flamboyant. Very um, well. Into and when she and goes stuff beforehand too, he he's scattered. When he's she scattered. goes through the tunnels, 
um, when she goes through the tunnels and you have that same like glittery opulence of, of the same colors that were in his room before and she goes through those tunnels to try to find him, it's the same colors, but if you look, every object that's like embedded into the ground and the walls and the ceiling are children's toys. Mm-hmm. Because he didn't get to be a child. Right. Because he's, it. well, and Calcifer says it. Um, he says that, well, it's the heart of a child after all. Yeah. You know, he, and, he stopped aging basically, like, you know, he ages, but, you know, he was like 12 or something, I think, when he ate. Um, right. He's he's he very young, for... and so that's where his heart is, too. And he's, you know, he throws temper tantrums like a child does. Right. And Sophie sees that. She's like, oh, he's fine. He's just throwing a tantrum. <laughs> He'll be good. And that's 100% what it was. And I, so I, I could have liked the, those scenes because of how beautiful and opulent they were they were you know drawn and animated but it was too much for me i liked the moving scene the best um and then as far as just like scenes that i liked um i'm a sucker and i i liked the cute alleyway scene when he rescues her (laughs) it is cute love it i loved that scene it was so cute i was like oh i'm gonna like this movie (laughs) i appreciate any man who will come and help a woman out or anybody out in a situation that is gross. Preach. Um, I even, something similar to me happened in a bar. I couldn't even tell you when or how long ago it was where weird dude was sitting on me and I was just like, yeah, huh? And then a guy comes up. Hey, he's like, hey, girl, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. And we, he like gave me a hug. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to see you. It took forever to get here. Aww. And we played into it. And he's like, you doing good? I was like, man, let's go somewhere else. And we sent and went, went and sat and like my friend showed up like a couple minutes Aww. later. But like he stayed with me until That's my like the start friend... to a romance novel, man. That's so sweet. It was very sweet. Um, and that was, man, I could not tell you. I, I was still living back home. So this had to be five, six years ago. Um, again, I was just waiting for my friends to show up to a bar. Weird dude, weird old dude. And dude just came over and was like, Ugh. oh, girl, good to see you. It's been a while. And we just talked until my friend showed up. Super cool. That's awesome. Loved it. Played pool with he and his friends. And it was just, you know, it was very chill. It was really cool. That's awesome. We appreciate any guy that's got a a radar for that and will totally come save the day in, like, a non-gross way either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We appreciate the non-gross saving of the day. So, guys, make note that that is something that you can totally be helpful for. Just keep an eye out for gross dudes being gross in situations like that because they are out there and we have all experienced them as women. Appreciate you, Say dude, no wherever you dudes. are in the universe. <laughs> right? Like, I hope you hit every green light on the way to work tomorrow. For real. <laughs> but I think my favorite scene, because I'm a sucker, also, the flower garden. It's stunning. Aww, I'm like, so I want that. I want someone to make a flower garden for me. I want that. It felt very like Edward and Bella, like this is our meadow. <laughs> I want Joe Sayishi music to be playing in the background while I walk through a meadow <laughs> that my lover made for me. Yes, please. Oh, I'll keep that. I'll keep that in the pocket whenever anyone decides to propose to me. Like, listen, Joe Sayishi music, flowers. <laughs> all right, dead ringer. All right, that's you're it. good. That's it. That's all I want. That's it. I'm yours you don't even have forever. To say a word. Like, yes. <laughs> I'm yours forever. <laughs> That's so cute. I love it. Who is your favorite character? I don't know that I have one. Really? It, it I when I love Sophie. 
but I love I love how I love Hal's uh, I love their journey of growth throughout the film. But honestly, mm-hmm. I think like Markle is actually one of my favorites because he I love Markle. He's just <laughs> he's a so cute, cute. He's just a cute little kid in his wonderment. I what I love is his awe of the magic as it happens. You know, he we see mm-hmm. him taken first he accepts Sophie like really fast. He's like, oh my gosh, she's making me breakfast. Love. She's cleaning the house. Love. Right. She wants to have right, you can lunch say by the lake. He just, he falls in love with her so fast and that's so cute. I mm-hmm. love that you like a child's intuition is very perceptive. I don't think we give children a lot of credit for their perception. And I, I think, wish I could still have that, you know, you lose it as you get older. And he perceives her as a non-threat and just a good person. I, I love the relationship they form so much, he and Sophie, that is, in this film. Oh, I love it. so. Their relationship, I think, I actually really adore the most in this film. It's so cute. It's like that mother-son relationship. And she just brings the best out of everyone. She brings out the best out of how, you know, I guess it's Sophie. Who am I kidding? I have, when, after I watched this <laughs> film, <laughs> after I watched this film, I added the name Sophie to my potential baby names list. Not Sophia. Oh, but with, with the F and yeah. the I and the little mark, the carrot over the I? No, no, just normal Sophie. That's how it's spelled. I looked it up. It's how it's spelled in... The, the Japanese version, it's like S-O-F-I with a carrot over the I. I'm just, I'm going regular English Sophie. <laughs> just S-O-P-H-I-E. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people love the name Sophia, and I, when I came across this character, this movie, and this film, I was like, oh, it's going on the list. I, so yeah, I guess it is Sophie by proxy. I, I like her. She's, I guess she's my favorite. Mm-hmm. I like the, the, what she brings out of everyone, the goodness in everyone. She's a truly good character, and mm-hmm. it does make me happy. Mm-hmm. I love truly good characters, especially, like, just truly good female characters. It, it just warms my heart, you know? What about you? Favorite character um, before we wrap? Calcifer. It has to be. It has to be. Calcifer's my favorite character. Billy Crystal did why, such though. a good job, man. He did I not just have knocked to. it out of the park. Okay, which, okay, if any of you were watching this movie and going, why do I recognize that voice? It's Mike Wazowski. Mike Wazowski. <laughs> Mike Wazowski got your life back lane. That... It's Calcifer. Um, and this is like the only other, <laughs> this is the only other animated movie that he did other than Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And my, maybe ever. I don't know that he's done anything else besides the Mike Wazowski. Um, but I like Calcifer because to me, I feel like he quietly has the most character progression. I mean, we have, we have Sophie's and we have Howl's and those are, those are more obvious, but for Calcifer, you know, he's just disgruntled with his position. He's been, you know, resorted to running a glorified house. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm a very fa- powerful fire demon. And... I move a house. But he, <laughs> That's my job. Like, right, I'd and be I, pissed. And I move a house. I, I, I heat water for the bath. That is my job. I make breakfast. That's my job. And he finds a way to be okay with that. You know, he finds he finds a way to be okay with this odd family that he has. And at at the end of at the end of the story, you know, when we're they're trying to break Howl's curse, he has Calcifer has this moment where he's faced with the very real possibility that if he's separated from Howl, he might die. And he chooses to do it anyway. You're right. You're and right. And that it's such a it's such a quiet decision, but he very much is willing to lay down his life so that Howell can live and that they can be a family 
together and it it won't be with him he very much accepts that as a real possibility and that's why I like his character so much is because he's just so happy and bright at the end and he comes back and he's like I'm alive it worked I didn't have to die so cool and everything's wonderful he's such a but quotable character may all he's your bacon so quotable <laughs> I wrote that one down here's a course for you may all your bacon burn. anytime I burn phenomenal. food let alone bacon it's Calcifer's voices <laughs> in my head. I'm like, that son of a gun cursed my food. Oh my gosh. He is absolutely iconic. Like, forget. What's what's the little, the sad egg character? What's the sad egg character? The Japanese not, not one? Not House Moving Castle. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. What do they call eggs in Japanese? Hold on. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? The little, little cartoon. I know exactly what you're talking egg. about. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. I cannot think of what it's called. Hold on. Pause. Pause for Googling. I'm like, I'm thinking of the the very famous cat. Push- Gudetama. I was thinking of Pusheen the cat. No, Gudetama. 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 Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, he's sorry. <laughs> when I looked up, I just Googled sad egg Japan. Comes up as Gudetama. <laughs> and his, his, his description is Gudetama is a genderless egg with a sad face and a shiny yellow butt. Mm-hmm. They love their characters. Oh, they, love they really do. They love their mascots. Do. Mm-hmm. They really, really do. They love characters. They love cute characters. They love stuff that they can make plushies out of and put on t-shirts and socks and everything. And that is the same for South Korea. I definitely noticed that when I went to visit. Everything everything is Pokemon everything. Everything. Um, but anyway, all that to say, that is kind of like what Calcifer's character reminds me of, is like that kind of that kind of character. He's like a Gudetama kind of character. Mm-hmm. He's just a sad, sad fireplace demon. <laughs> I love him. He's the best. And now I want him on all my stuff. Because <laughs> his eyes, his eyes and his face are so cute. He's like, I'm a very powerful fire demon, and he has these just cute little round eyes. And that's it. <laughs> uh, yes, he's the very best. He's, he, again, quotable. He's so cute. Very quotable. Yeah. Calcifer's my spirit animal for now. Audrey, okay. that's all I got. All right. That's all I got, man. That was a great movie. Thank you so much for making me watch that. I want to, like, go down a rabbit hole and, like, watch all the Studio Ghibli movies now. Good Lord, please. Please do it. Please. (laughs) Next one you should watch is Spirited Away. Let's get into the award-winning one. Okay. All right. I, it's it's on the list. There's there's a whole bunch that popped up on HBO when I finished this one. And I All like, of them are on HBO except for I think the one that's out in theaters now, or at least the one just got nominated for an Academy Award. Right. What is it? The Boy and the Heron. Mm-hmm. I have yeah, not I'm interested that one yet. to watch that. Um, it's gotten it's gotten mixed reviews, so I'm interested to watch it and form opinions for myself once I've watched a bunch of Studio Ghibli and can make an educated opinion. Um, okay. Well. That concludes our episode on Howl's Moving Castle. Um, I'm so excited we got to talk about this. I'm so happy that we finally started talking about Studio Ghibli and we got to talk about one of your favorite movies. Thank you for picking Literally, one that you knew that I would love. top ten, top five favorite films. Probably top love five. It. I absolutely love it. Love the soundtrack. It's definitely uh, working music for me now because it's great classical sounding background music oh, yes. that is great for brain fuel. Um, next week, uh, in honor of Black History Month, we are going to be... Uh, watching and talking about one of Cherie's picks, which I'm very excited to watch because I've never seen another it. Another favorite. Gonna talk about, another favorite. We're going to talk about Get Out. Ooh. So, get ready, pause, y'all. Pause for excitement. Let me just say, <laughs> lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of symbolism in that film. If you are missing them, you are not paying attention. You're not watching. 
I'm so excited. I've never seen it, and I'm so excited to watch it because it's been on my to-watch list, and I just never got around to it because it looked so good, and it won tons of awards and had awesome reviews. So make sure to be here next Friday to tune in for that. Roll credits. Cinematic Pulse is edited and produced by Cherie Jackson. The episodes and theme are written and performed by yours truly. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Cinematic Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Please consider supporting us by becoming a member of our Patreon, where you can get access to show notes, vote on our upcoming episodes, and get exclusive downloads of our episode art. Thank you so much for listening, because we just checked your Cinematic Pulse.